How many of you know that Jesus is coming soon? Really know that. He is coming soon. As you're getting ready to read with me, we're going to talk about the most important building in the world tonight. All right, let's stand together. We're going to talk about the pearl of Bible prophecy, and that being Israel. We're reading out of Revelations now, the angel and the small scroll. The angel and the small scroll. Last time we closed out with a mighty angel who is none other than Christ himself. Remember that? Descending from heaven. He's seen by John having one foot in the sea and another foot on the land. And what is this angel? Who is Jesus Christ? Obviously, the way he's described. What does he say? Time is no longer. History ends with Jesus Christ. The Lord of history stands at the end of history, and he says to us, time is no longer. History as we have known it is over with. At this point, history as we have known it is coming to a close. This event takes place midpoint through the Great Tribulation, the end-time days, here designated as the, quote, days of the voice of the seventh angel, indicates that the last half of the Great Tribulation is going to quickly occur. And it's powerful. The mighty angel, or Christ, holds in his hand a small book that has already been opened. And here's the little book, and let's read this, and then you can be seated. Revelations 10, 8 through 11. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Here's Jesus one foot in the sea, one on land, and he's got a little book in his hand, and it's already been opened. That's the visual. So I went to the angel, says John, and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Powerful. So John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Said that to John. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that our Lord Jesus stands at the end of time and declares history finished. Thank you, Lord, that the whole world is in your hands. And we pray, speak to us tonight. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, speak to me, change me, renew my mind in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, clearly, this mysterious little book contains the events about to be described. And that's why it was sweet to his taste but bitter to his stomach. You know, I've been reading Jeremiah virtually for weeks now, over and over again, the book of Jeremiah. And I can tell you that it's sweet to my taste, but what I see God telling me through it is bitter because Israel in Jeremiah's time is America in our time. There's just no question about it. And I think America's in trouble. And when I read the Word of God, it is sweet because I love the Word of God. But the gist of that message is that when it got to his stomach, it was bitter because of what the Word predicted. It wasn't easy. And the word is not always easy, and we shouldn't expect it to be. 
This mysterious little book contains the events about to be described that are about to take place. John is to literally ingest it, absorbing the information contained in the book into his mind and being. He's to meditate in it. Sweet are the promises and plans of God, but often the judgments and justice of God also predicted are bitter in results. That's what Revelation is all about. God has finally said, I can't take anymore. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm not going to endure it anymore. The sins have reached the place of judgment. That's what it's all about, at least a lot of it. What John is about to see taking place on earth is bitter indeed. And clearly, verse 11 is a prediction that John's revelation would go to the entire world, as indeed it has. Here we are in America, in Texas, 2,100 years later, teaching it. So what God said to him came to pass. Now let's talk about the rebuilt temple because this is what Revelations 11 is about. As we come to chapter 11, it's important to note that from chapters 11 to 14, John pauses in the chronological sequence of things and zooms in on some key events going on in the tribulation. Now watch this. This is real important we understand this. It's like going 60 miles an hour down a highway with sights and towns and sounds zipping by. And somebody says, hey, slow down. Let's drive around the streets of this town and see the sights. And that's what's happening in Revelations 11. We're slowing down and we're pulling in tight on some things more closely. And we're going to see some things a little bit better. John is slowing down. We're going to see some close-up highlights of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We're going to drive around a little bit slowly and look at what's going on in these first three and a half years. First, he focuses on the temple, which is crucial to end-time events. Now, I want you all to really perk up on this one, because if you want to understand Bible prophecy, always focus on Israel. Israel is the pearl of Bible prophecy. The whole focus of Bible prophecy is on Israel. Even the surrounding nations are focused on Israel and will one day attack Israel. All the players are in place. Matter of fact, when I'm done with this series on Revelations, I'm going to do one last, one last series, about two weeks, I'm going to spend on the Gog-Magog war, the Ezekiel 38 war. Because Israel is going to be attacked You may very likely wake up one morning and turn on the news and see that Israel has been attacked. John is slowing down now, Revelation 11, and he's pulling in tight on Israel. He's going to tell us something very important about the temple. Revelation 11, 1 and 2. John says, then I was given a measuring stick, a ruler, a yardstick, and I was told, go and measure what, everybody? The temple of God and the altar." And count the number of what? Worshippers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, let me explain this to you. A little bit of background. Just hold those verses in your mind. Let's go back a little bit. Way back. When Abraham was told by God to offer up Isaac, you remember that story? He went to the top of Mount Moriah. And there the drama of Isaac being spared 
took place. You remember, I, Abraham had the knife raised. And right before he was about to bring it down, the angel of God stopped him. The ram was caught in the thicket just over yonder. And that ram was offered up instead of Isaac. And the Bible says that God considered Isaac, as it were, raised from the dead because he was as good as dead. So he was spared there on Mount Moriah. Now later, King Solomon ordered his engineers to literally cut the top off of Mount Moriah. And in an amazing engineering feat, they accomplished it. Where Isaac had been offered. They then built a wall around it and filled it with dirt like a great big sandbox. On top of this, they built Solomon's temple. There it is. It was a magnificent structure. Unbelievable what they could do back in those days. All right? So they built Solomon's temple on the very site where Abraham had laid Isaac down and was about to sacrifice him. Where that whole drama took place, that's where the temple of Solomon was built. Now, when the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, later, Jeremiah prophesied to them, said, you better turn or you're going to lose everything. And the people of God did not listen. They backslid. Every man followed the dictates of his own heart. That phrase is given seven times, at least, in Jeremiah's prophecy to Israel. He says of them, I've read you, I've got a character sketch of you, and here's your problem. You've rejected the Word of God, and you are following the evil dictates of your own heart, and God's going to bring judgment on you, and He did. Jeremiah saw it happen. You read the book of Lamentations, and you can see the horrific drama that played out in front of his eyes. Parents eating their children, children dropping dead in the streets, famine. I mean, it was a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching situation. Carried off to Babylon for 70 years. When they were taken into Babylonian captivity, the temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. Now, 50 years later, construction of a new temple was begun in 537 B.C. After a 17-year hiatus... Work resumed in 520 B.C. with completion occurring in 516. It's not B.C.E. You know what B.C.E. is? It's a bunch of people that hate Jesus trying to change B.C. That was supposed to be taken out. B.C.E. means before the common era. Oh, let me translate it for you. We don't want to hear about Christ before Christ, so we're going to change it to B.C.E. I will not write that. If I write a book, I will never put B.C.E. in it. I'll put B.C. Now, that's just my little stickler. But being in the day we live in, they're trying to get rid of Jesus every which way they can, and that's one of those ways. All right, and then it was dedicated in 515 B.C. So catch this now. 72 years after the temple was destroyed, it had been rebuilt and was dedicated. Five centuries later, this second temple was renovated by Herod the Great, in 20 BC. Okay? So we're going through a quick scan of the temple, the history of the temple. Now, this was known as Herod's temple. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful, beautiful thing that Herod built. But what did Jesus say about it? It was subsequently destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD. Per Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. You remember that little conversation he had with the disciples as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds. 
His disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But Jesus said, do you see all these things, all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another stone. I mean, it's going to be completely destroyed. That seemed impossible, just like the World Trade Towers. When God says something is coming down, it's coming down. It's coming down. And nobody believed the disciples scratched their head. What do you mean it's going to be completely destroyed? Well, it was in 70 A.D. The Jewish people were scattered at this time to the four corners of the earth. They were a people without a country, the Jewish people. People without a country, exactly according to Moses' prediction. Have you wondered why the Jews have been so persecuted, so maligned, so criticized, so attacked. Listen to what Moses told them would happen to them if they did not obey God. Deuteronomy 28. For the Lord will scatter you, he said to the Jewish people, way centuries before the days of Jesus. The Lord is going to scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship foreign gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. God's made of wood and stone. There among those nations you will find no peace or place to rest. And the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. Your life will constantly hang in the balance, he said to the Jewish people. You will live night and day in fear, unsure if you will survive. Are they that way right now? In the morning, you will say, man, I wish it was night. And in the evening, you will say, oh, if only it were morning. Because when your head hits the pillow, you can't sleep. And then in the morning, you don't want to face a day of more terrors. For you will be terrified by the awful horrors you will see around you. Thanks, Moses, for such a great word over my future. But that's what he said. Jewish history utterly fulfills this prediction. There has never been a place or time in which they were not persecuted, despised, and rejected. Think about it right now, church. The attention of the whole world is on the Jewish people. The number one challenge for any American president is to try to bring peace. They are surrounded by enemies, vastly outnumbered. Nations galore, Arab nations. Palestinians hate them. Ahmadinejad has said, I'm going to vaporize you off the planet. That's the Jewish people. But I got to tell you something. You better not lay your hand on them. Because if you do, I read my Bible. You in trouble with God. I'm serious. We're going to see this as time goes on. In the meantime... Islam was born around 700 A.D. Islam claims that at the end of his life, Muhammad rode into Jerusalem on a horse and ascended into heaven on that horse from the very spot where the Jewish temple had been. Uh-oh. What happened because of that? I mean, the founder of Islam took off on a horse into heaven from the very spot where the temple had been. The believers in Muhammad, the Muslims, eventually built a structure on that very spot, and they called it the Dome of the Rock. 
There it is. The Dome of the Rock has stood on the side of the temple since the late 7th century A.D. I've been in that dome. I've been in it. Now, meanwhile, God had promised through his prophets that the Jewish people would one day be restored to their homeland. It's all through the Bible. He told that the Jewish people, when they were taken into Babylonian captivity, that they would be brought back home after 70 years. And they came back and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple after 70 years. They were released under Cyrus. But then God said, you're going to be dispersed again, and I'm going to bring you back to your homeland again. Very important here that we follow what the Bible says about the Jewish people and this temple site. Against all odds, after being relentlessly persecuted, despised, scattered, and homeless for centuries... Israel became a nation again in 1948. And that's just amazing. Amazing. I was talking to a guy who was preaching in Chicago in 1948 when it was announced that Israel had become a nation. And he said Jewish people all over the city of Chicago were running out in the streets, screaming and yelling and rejoicing and jumping and shouting and dancing in Chicago. It was huge news. When Israel became a nation again in 1948, the prophetic hourglass was turned upside down, and now we're in the final generation. This was hugely prophetic. In the famous Six-Day War in 1967, they took Jerusalem again. And since that time, the vitriol, the hatred, the war, and the bloodshed between Arab and Jew has been unrelenting. The crux of the problem is that it's a battle over the land, but I think it goes way back further than that. It goes back to the home where Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac lived. And one day, Sarah looked out the window and saw Ishmael harassing Isaac, and she said, that's it, he's got to go. She told Abraham, he's out. Get him out. God told Abraham, listen to your wife. It's good advice. Listen to your wife. And you know the story. Hagar and Ishmael left and went out and thought they were going to die. She thought they were going to die. She thought she was going to watch Ishmael die, but an angel appeared to her, took care of her, told her he was going to become a nation, and that's exactly what has happened. But the rivalry... Between the two, Ishmael, the Bible says, the son of the flesh, and Isaac, the son of the spirit, battling each other. The flesh and the spirit can't live in the same house. Can't happen. How many of you know that's true in your house? All right. So I think there was an antipathy a vitriol, an anger, a rivalry between the two, and it's carried down through the generations. And I think that's the root. But now let's go on. Let's be clear. There's no question that God gave that land to the Jewish people via Abraham, beginning all the way back to Genesis 12 and the covenant God made with him. Here's the covenant. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. Go to where? The land I will show you. Genesis 12, 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. Now, 
God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. Abraham even said once, I wish Ishmael could live before you. And God said, no, it's going to be the son of promise. It's going to be Isaac. And Isaac and his descendants were the inheritors of the land. Haven't you ever wondered why there's such a huge battle over this thing? Folks, it is spiritual at its root. It's spiritual. Now look at Revelation 11 and 1. We're coming back now. Here's John. He's sitting there via vision, having been transported by the Spirit three and a half years into the Great Tribulation. And he is told to get a measuring stick and go and measure what? The temple of God and the altar. And he said, and I want you to count the number of worshipers. Now what in the world does that mean? Catch this. This verse predicts that the temple will again exist in the last days. You can't measure something that's not there. Are y'all there? I know you're thinking. The Jewish people will build the temple again right where it used to be. Right where it used to be. He said to John, I want you to go measure it. But wait a minute. It's not there. That verse is telling us it's going to be there. It's going to be there. Now, this also presupposes that the old Jewish sacrifices and the temple worship will be reinstituted. John is told to count who? The number of worshipers. Well, the only people that worship in the Jewish temple are the Jewish people observing Old Testament ritual. What we're going to see in later chapters is that the Antichrist will make a peace treaty with Israel. Have you noticed, everybody elected as American president, one of the first things they try to do is bring peace between Jew and Arab. They try and they try. Clinton tried it. Bush tried it. Barack Obama's trying it. They're all trying it. Now watch. One day, a man will succeed. That man will be Antichrist. He will succeed in what everybody has tried but failed to do. He will bring peace between Jew and Arab, he will bring a Palestinian-Israeli peace pact. He'll make a peace treaty with Israel. He will negotiate a peace treaty. He will finally solve the age-old Arab-Israeli conflict. No doubt, one of the carrots that Antichrist places in front of the Jews will be to allow them to practice their Old Testament rituals and worship. That's one of the carrots. That's going to be somewhere in the mix. Because the temple's back, the Old Testament worship is back, the Jews are back in the temple. And right now the Dome of the Rock is there. But though temple worship in Jerusalem will be restored, it will be interrupted once more by an invasion of Gentiles. Revelation 11.2 says, Don't measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nations. That word is ethnos the different ethnic peoples that's been turned over to the Gentiles, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The second half of the tribulation, the Gentiles will trample the outer court of the temple, and we're going to see that in weeks to come because Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation and war and hell break loose in Jerusalem, in Israel. 
and Gentile armies trample the outer core of the temple. That's coming. And who will these Gentile invaders be? It'll be the forces of Antichrist who will dominate the Middle East and Jerusalem for 42 months, a period of three and a half years. It's going to happen right there in Israel. Now, let me summarize all this. I know this is a lot. Let me summarize it. At the beginning of the tribulation, Antichrist will make a peace treaty with Israel. The prophet Daniel predicted it. Here's what Daniel wrote. The ruler, Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. That means seven years. A seven-year peace treaty. They will sign it. And when they do, they make a pact with the devil. Antichrist will be more persuasive than anybody that has ever approached them. He will wheel and deal. He will make it happen. Man, if you wake up tomorrow and it's in the news that a peace treaty is about to be signed, you better lift up your head because your redemption draweth nigh. So say with me, Israel is the pearl of Bible prophecy. Watch it like a hawk and watch what different nations do to it and watch how the focus of the world is turned towards it. Now, let's go on. No doubt about it. A peace pact between Arab and Jew will finally be realized, but it will be at the hands of Antichrist. At the end of the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will stop all of it. He'll stop all of it three and a half years into the Great Tribulation Here's the Jews practicing their Old Testament ritual. Everything seems fine, wonderful. We got peace in this great. We got our temple in this wonderful. No more war with the Arabs in this wonderful. Antichrist will end all of that. He'll commit what Scripture calls the abomination of desolation. What in the world is that? Daniel said in 927, the ruler, the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings. He will walk in. I think his ego does this. He doesn't want anything else worship but him. He will walk into the temple. He'll say, stop it. Stop these sacrifices. Stop this worship. Stop this. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds... He will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration, the abomination of desolation, until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him, Daniel said. So he will set up a sacrilegious object that brings desecration to the holy of holies in the temple where the glory was intended to dwell. He'll go in there and he will sit in the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory has dwelt. And he will say, I am God. I am God. The abomination of desolation in 167 B.C. A Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. This happened before. He also sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, mocking the Jews' God. This event is known as the abomination of desolation. It is when the holy place is defiled. 
It's when basically somebody spits in the face of God. Jesus spoke about this very thing. Did you know that? Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus said, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. Now, remember, Antiochus Epiphanes did it in 167 B.C. Before Christ. Jesus is saying it's going to happen again. In Matthew 24, 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. So the day hadn't arrived yet. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. But in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus was speaking some 200 years after the abomination of desolation described above had already occurred. So Jesus must have been prophesying that sometime in the future, another abomination of desolation would occur in a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it happens three and a half years into the Great Tribulation. Revelation 13, 14 describes Antichrist making some kind of an image which all are forced to worship, turning the temple of the living God into a place of worship for the Antichrist is truly an abomination. I think this might be talking about some kind of video technology where the whole world can see into that temple where the Antichrist sets something up and says, this is what you are to worship. Because the whole world sees it. For the first three and a half years, the new world leader will maintain warm and friendly relations with Israel. They'll think they cut a great peace deal, guaranteeing their integrity and their autonomy, but he will be a worldwide hero for only a season. Finally, the Arab-Israeli conflict will have been solved, but then he will break that treaty, invade Jerusalem, slay two witnesses we're going to look at next, and continue his evil domination for the final 42 months. Powerful stuff. Now, here's the lesson out of this. You can't make a deal with the devil and not get burned. How many of you all know that's true? You can't make a deal with the devil and not get burned. No matter how good it looks, it's going to turn on you. Because that's what happens to Israel. Now, I want to finish this out tonight by talking about two witnesses. This is just a mind blower. The future prophecy involved in this just blows my mind. During the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will have a thorn in his side in the form of two witnesses who prophesy about the awesome judgments of God that are coming. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation, while he's trying to win the world, he's got two prophets who won't let him rest. John writes in Revelations 11, 3 through 6, here they are, the dynamic duo. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap. Who's that sound like? John the Baptist. And they will prophesy during those 1260 days or three and a half years. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now look at what God does for them during the tribulation. Look at the protection. If anybody tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. How many of you wish you had that power for a day? <laughs> that might mean that the word of the Lord is so powerful through these guys that it has a slaying effect on those who hear it. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die 
Wow. So the scuttlebutt is, don't say anything to those two. You will be cooked on the spot. And there they are for the first three and a half years, prophesying to the world. All right? They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. Who's that sound like? Elijah. He said it's not going to rain and there won't be dew on the ground until I say so. And they have the power to turn the rivers and the oceans into blood. Who's that sound like? Come on, talk to me, church. Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. That's Moses. Now, here's what I think. Since it was Moses and Elijah that appeared to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is very likely them again. I think it's very possible that it's Moses and Elijah who are the two witnesses in Jerusalem in this Revelation account. When the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and invades Jerusalem and commits the abomination of desolation, the two witnesses are finally slain. Let's read about it. Revelations 11, verse 7, when they complete their testimony, the beast, Antichrist, that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them, and he will kill them. But wait, look at this. Notice next how John uncannily predicts the ability of our present-day world to view something worldwide via television and the Internet. Here he is on the Isle of Patmos, first century. There is no TV. There is no Internet. There are no cameras. You sketched people. You sketched things. But look what he predicts. 11, 8 to 9. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem. There they are on Main Street in Jerusalem. The city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. The city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, read it with me, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. Wow! How could you predict that in the first century? And how could that be? Except for television, internet, cameras, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC. Won't CNN love it? That was mean, wasn't it? But look, here's the whole world looking at their dead bodies, and they're having a party. Look what it says. Now, this passage alone mystified Bible scholars for centuries. They said, how could this be, the whole world looking at these guys? Until the advent of satellite television, 24-7 news channels. And notice next how a world experiencing great tribulation rejoices over the death of the righteous. It's party time. Revelations 11, 9 through 10 says, no one will be allowed to bury them. Because why? Because everybody wants to gloat over their death. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But the worldwide celebration won't last long. Watch what happens. Verses 11 and 12. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Can you imagine? They stood up. Isn't that powerful? Here's party time. Everybody's, you know, having a blast, giving each other presents, rejoicing of these two thorns in the world's side, bringing the word of God that they hated are dead. And God says, you got that camera pulled in tight? 
Watch now. And look what happened to everybody. Terror struck all who were staring at them. I think so. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets. And here's the words for the rapture. Read it with me. Come up here. Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. See, God, even in the great tribulation, does not leave the world without a witness. These two witnesses will be resurrected from the dead while the whole world continues to watch. The moment this happens, an earthquake rocks the city, verse 13. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Some eyes are opened up and they say, nobody gets up from the dead unless God's involved. Then John warns, Chapter 11, verse 14, the second terror is passed, and that was the sixth trumpet. But look, the third terror, the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. Remember how we said at the beginning of this series, the action often shifts from earth to heaven and back again. At this point in chapter 11, John is taken up into heaven to see the seventh angel blow his trumpet. Verse 15 says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. Say it with me, everybody. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This last trumpet will encompass the whole time period of 42 months, described in detail all the way through chapter 19. As we've already mentioned, this final 1260 days is called in chapter 10, verse 7, the days of the voice of the seventh angel. Now we're about to close. In heaven, John again sees the 24 elders. And who do they represent? The raptured, glorified saints and the resurrected New Testament saints. What are they doing? They are rejoicing, worshiping, and proclaiming that the time of rewards in heaven is at hand. And at the same time, the hour of judgments on earth is in process. Verses 16 to 18 say the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped Him. Say it with me, everybody. And they said, We give thanks to You, Lord God, the Almighty, the One who is and who always was. For now You have assumed Your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath. Say it with me, everyone. But now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Now, you just read that. You're going to be there. So we just had a practice session because that's going to come out of your mouth again in heaven. After this, the following chapters describe the conclusion of history. Civilization as we know it will destroy itself and Jesus Christ will intervene in majesty and glory. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of His covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed 
thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm on earth. We're praising God in heaven, and all of this is happening on earth. Next time, a woman and a dragon. Can we stand up together?